Luke. But today we want to look at Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. And this is Paul's closing words to his letter to the Romans. And Paul closes his letter to the Romans with praise to God. And so I thought it might be appropriate to close Advent with praise to God. It just seemed fitting. This is what we would call a doxology. Now, a doxology just... It's a fancy word, and it just means glory to God or praise to God. Um, And you can see this in in verse 27. It says, To the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul closes out his letter to the Romans with, Give glory to God. Give praise to God. To the only wise God. So a doxology makes God glorious. There are many doxologies in the Bible. Probably one of the most famous ones is in, is in, the, book of, is in the book of Jude. And um, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That may be one of the more famous doxologies. We sing a doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost. There's another famous um, uh, doxology. It's called the Gloria Patris. Glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Hallelujah. Amen. These are all doxologies. So um, these are things then, or words, brief words, very short words, that give glory to God. And so I guess before we really get into our text, let's think about what we mean by glory, because that's one of those odd terms or difficult to find terms. It's kind of like the word beauty. If I were to say to find beauty, you might say, well, I don't know exactly how to define beauty. I know beauty when I see it, but I don't know exactly how to define beauty. Whereas if I were to say um, describe a Christmas tree or a Christmas one. You might be able to say, well, they're, you know, kind of evergreen trees. You would be able to give a description of it. But to give a description or to define glory is one of those rather challenging things. When we talk about that a lot, we throw that term around a lot. Give God the glory or glory be to God or God is glorious. What do we mean when we say um, glory to God? When the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people among whom God is well pleased. What do we mean when we say, give glory to God? Well, it actually, the the word, especially in the Hebrew, has this idea of, of weight, being weighty. So when we think of glory, the, the, the very basic component of the word has to do with something that is weighty and then you think well I don't know that doesn't help me a whole lot at least to me it's like okay so that doesn't help me define glory what do you mean by weighty well generally things you can see how the how the word came to mean what it means is that something that is weighty generally had value something that was heavy had value it had worth just like more like gold has weight it has value. And so when we talk about giving glory to God, we are speaking of 
of something that is of great value, of great worth. In other words, then, when we give God the glory, we are speaking of God having supreme worth and supreme value. So when we say glory to God, we are saying that God is of supreme worth. God is of supreme value. There is nothing in all of this world that is of greater value or greater worth than God. That is what we are talking about. That's how we're going to be using this this idea of giving God glory because He is of supreme value. He is of supreme worth. There is nothing of greater worth than He is. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to what? To the glory of God. So that even when we do mundane things such as eating and drinking, which we'll probably all do here in whenever I'm done with this little message. Whenever we are done with it, we are going to go and we are going to eat and drink something we do on a regular basis. But the Bible's Paul tells us, do so in recognition of God's supreme value, of God's supreme worth, that nothing is of greater value, that this food came to you from the God who is of greatest value. God is even more valuable than the bread we eat, because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do it all to the glory, so that God is of supreme value. So this is how Paul closes his letter. Let God be seen as supreme value, supreme worth. So, that's my introduction. That's where, that should set the stage of where we're going to go. Let's look at our text today. I'm going to read it, and then we will spend a little bit of time um, addressing some of the beautiful, glorious, if you will, truths that are in this doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You'll see how this begins now to him who is able to strengthen you. Be glory. Now to him who is able to establish you, to him be glory. To the one who is able to make you strong, to him be supreme value. To the one who is able to establish you, to him be supreme worth. God, first of all, let's understand this. First of all, God is able to strengthen you. To him who is able, who has the power, the ability to strengthen you, be glory. God has the ability to do this. God has the ability, and by the way, God by implication has the desire that you would be strong. Some of your translations may use the word establish. And I really like that term. I Strengthen and establish would be synonymous here. We see them used throughout um, the New Testament. That word is used, um, sometimes it's translated establish, sometimes strengthen. Um, But I like that idea of being established because it has the idea of being immovable. It has the idea of being permanent. It has the idea of being unshakable. Now, to the one who is able to make you unshakable, to the one who is able to make you immovable, one of the kind of the founding verses of of this church, something that has been in our hearts and minds really since the day that Simone and I came here 
has been in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. It is, uh, I think, one of the foundational verses. It goes like this. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. In other words, the one who hears God's words is the one who is firmly planted, established, immovable, permanent. Not even drought affects it. In fact, when drought comes, it still bears fruit. This has kind of been the vision or the idea. It's kind of what under has undergird, undergirded all that we have done here. Jesus said, my words, the one who hears my words and acts upon them, he is the one like the man who built his house upon the rock and the winds came and the storms came and the house was not moved. Now to God who is able to make you permanent. Now to Him who is able to make you, to establish you so that no matter what comes, you are not moved. Storms come, winds come, waves come, drought comes, and you are not only immovable, but you are fruitful. To Him be all honor and glory and praise. To Him describe greatest value and greatest worth. So now to him who is able to strengthen you. But notice this, according to my gospel. So God is seen seen to be a supreme worth when you are established. And I don't know about you, but I'm so often blown about like chaff. I am not like the one who is immovable, the one who is firmly planted, the one who is established, the one who has a house built on a firm foundation. So oftentimes we are like chaff that is blown about by every, every... Frightening wind or every slight breeze seems to blow us off course. So how does God transform chaff that is easily blown away into an immovable structure that cannot be, um, that, that is permanent, that cannot be shaken? How does God do that? He does it by the gospel. Now to him who is able to establish and make you immovable by my gospel according to my gospel, by the means of my gospel. We become strong, we become immovable, we become established, we become permanent, we become fruit bearers in drought through the means of the gospel. And you'll notice that Paul says, through my gospel. This, do not think for a moment that Paul's gospel is something unique to him. Paul says, this is my gospel to separate it or to distinguish it from the many false gospels that were going around. Gospels that were man-made. Gospels that originated in the minds of men and the fantasies of men. But Paul tells us in Galatians 1, 11, and 12 that my gospel didn't come through the wisdom of man. My gospel came from direct revelation from God. This is my gospel, not in that it's some personal thing that I just made up, but it is distinct from man-made gospels. So God is able to establish us. How? By the divine gospel that originates in heaven and proclaimed of 
through the Apostle Paul and the other Apostles. I mean, there are many Gospels in our days. We have what might be called the Prosperity Gospel, which is no Gospel at all. It is not good news. It enslaves people. Or we've had the Social Gospel, which is just simply works-based salvation, completely taking Christ out of the picture. These are no Gospels. These are Gospels that are made up in the minds and the hearts of men, but that will not establish you. It will not make you strong. It will not cause you to bear fruit in the time of drought. It, they are no Gospels at all, but the good news, the Gospel um, that saves will strengthen you. It will establish you. So we become established and strong through the Gospel. Paul wants God to make us strong. He doesn't want it to make us strong in the sense that we're able to lift heavy weights or run long distances or anything like that. He wants us to be established in the faith of the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where I want you to be strong. That's what's going to strengthen you. The gospel is going to make you strong. So we become strong and we become established through the good news. Gospel simply means good news. So we become strong or established, immovable, um, permanent, unshakable through the good news of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in this brief doxology, Paul does not unpack what he means by the gospel for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a doxology. This is the end of the letter. He's not going into great detail. And the reason he's not going into great detail is because in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, he unpacks exactly what his gospel is. So he wants you to be strong in the gospel that he has proclaimed. And at the very beginning of Romans, he said that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to, to the Greek. And so Paul begins with saying, the good news, the gospel, the thing that it will establish you, the thing that will, the means by which God has set forth to establish you and make you strong, is the gospel that saves. And then he begins begins to describe and define exactly what that good news is, what that heavenly, divinely revealed gospel is. And he begins by revealing the condition of all mankind, that mankind universally is broken, that mankind universally um, and all of mankind has has a severed relationship with a holy God and therefore stands at enmity with God. In fact, Paul goes on and says, you know, we're like she- everybody. Everybody is like sheep who has gone astray. He says, nobody's lips even speak the truth. Then he goes on and says, none are righteous. No, not even one. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, and that this, that the wages of sin is death. All of sin and the wages of sin is death. So he begins his gospel with the idea that every human being has a death sentence resting over them. Then he says, through the death of Jesus Christ, we may be declared not guilty. All men are guilty. There's not even one who is not guilty. Not even one. But through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, guilty men may be declared not guilty. This is good news. This is, Paul said, this is my gospel. This is the one that came to me by revelation. I didn't make this up. 
And it's the power of God and salvation. That you were guilty. All of us were guilty. But through the death of Jesus, all those who believe in Christ will be declared not guilty. And this not guilty verdict is a free gift from God to men. You do not earn it. You do not work for it. You do not somehow merit it. But it is given to God to man by His grace. Eternal life then is a gift given by God. It is not an obligation due. If we say, Paul goes on and he says, if we were to work for it, if we were to merit it, then it's a wage due. It's not a gift. And, and salvation is a gift. Otherwise, you would work and you'd check off all the boxes and you'd say, I did all the work that I was supposed to do and you would enter the gates of heaven and say, here's my list. I did everything. Now you owe me. We have a contract. And God owes no man anything. God is no man's debtor. God has never been in debt to man. But He will give you. He will give guilty men a not guilty verdict through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Christ died for you. This is Paul's gospel. This is what's going to make you strong. Eternal life then is a gift given by God. It's not an obligation to do. Then Paul goes on and says these justified, these ones who are declared not guilty, all of these people who are not guilty are not simply criminals who have been set free, but they are adopted then by God into his family and made children of God. And that then God empowers those not now not guilty individuals. He empowers them by the Holy Spirit to live out a life that is pleasing to God, that they are no longer enslaved by the power of sin, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit who alters our desires and our passions so that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None can bring a charge against God's elect. Nothing, not affliction, not life, not death, not angels, rulers, powers, distress, height, depth, or any other created thing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let this strengthen you. Let this empower you. You want to be immovable. You want to be established. That's Paul saying, my gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, let will establish and strengthen you. Now to Him, the one who is able to establish you through that gospel, let Him be have all value, supreme in value, supreme in worth. That's the doxology. And yet, at the same time, Paul now goes on and says, by the way, this gospel, this gospel that I've proclaimed to you is not something that is new in the mind of God. In fact, he says that it is a mystery that had been kept secret for long ages. The gospel was in the heart and mind of God from eternity past. He did not develop it when Adam fell. He did not just think of it when Christ was born. He did not come up with the idea when Christ was crucified. Gee, I've got to get him come back up to life somehow. How am I going to do this? What do I need to do? This was God's eternal plan. This gospel, the gospel that saves, the gospel that declares all men guilty and yet also declare, uh, vindicates all men by His grace and empowers them to live out a life that is pleasing to Him, to the glory of God. This was in the heart and mind of God from eternity past. I would hope that would strengthen you. 
I would hope that would encourage you. I hope that would reinforce the supreme value of God. You are part of that. You are part of that eternal plan. From eternity, God knew your salvation. God knew you were broken. God knew you were lost. God knew you were guilty. And from eternity past, God had a plan to make sure that you were declared not guilty. When you came to salvation, you may have thought, well, it's maybe new to you. But it was perfectly according to God's perfect plan. But not only is God's gospel, not only is that plan an eternal plan, but it's an historical plan. That is, the Christian faith is historical. It's one of the great things about um, the truth that we live. One of the great things about the Christian faith. It actually played out in history. You can check it. You can check to see, did these things happen? And they actually did happen. Most most scholars today, even unbelieving scholars, recognize that there's a man by the name of Jesus Christ who lived and walked the earth. I mean, he did something incredible. Something happened. And they all agree. Nobody disagrees with the empty tomb. Now, we may disagree on how the tomb became empty. But nobody argues the empty tomb. Everybody knows that's a historical fact. Now, there's all sorts of bizarre theories on how the tomb became empty. I'll tell you, the only reasonable, logical um, explanation is that this Jesus who walked the earth and did incredible things was the eternal Son of God and He rose from the dead. And as as far-fetched as that may sound, it's the only reasonable, logical conclusion. But God has worked through history. He worked through Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fell. And then he worked through a guy by the name of Abram. And then Abram became Abraham, or was renamed Abraham. And, And out of him came a nation. Out of nothing came the nation of Israel. God created out of nothing a nation. God has always worked through a people. First he worked through the first couple, Adam and Eve. Then he worked through Abram. Abraham and his descendants and he brought forth a nation and God began to work through that nation and through that nation brought forth a son, Jesus Christ the Messiah who was born um, according to the law um, that he might redeem those who were born under the law and that this Jesus Christ walked this earth. God has always worked in history and he has set prophets to, to, to point along the way that this is coming, this is happening, this is what God is going to do so that you may know, that you may be firmly established um, and and have trust that God is working. And so the Christian faith is a historical faith, which is what Paul says. So this mystery, that is the gospel, has been kept secret for long ages, but it's now been disclosed. How? Through the prophetic writings that has been made known to all nations. The Bible is the record of God bringing to fruition the gospel that strengthens the people of God to the glory of God. And the gospel was made known through the prophets and declared to all the world. So let me just give a brief summary of where we've been. This is a pretty dense passage of text, isn't it? God is seen as having supreme value in that he establishes you in his eternal gospel that saves the preaching of Jesus Christ just as he revealed from the beginning of time. That's where we're at. God is seen as having supreme worth 
in that he establishes you in his eternal gospel that saves. And he does this through the preaching of Jesus Christ and it is something that has been revealed from, um, from the beginning of time. Are we all together on this at this point? But has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations. What a great truth that is. It's been made known to all nations. This is one of the things that we're trying to do. One of the great things I think about that, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, really trying to go to unreached people groups, really has an emphasis there. That, that the, this gospel that strengthens, this gospel that saves, this gospel that establishes, this gospel that makes uh, uh, criminals declared not guilty he makes the guilty not guilty this gospel going to the ends of the earth and then it says this to bring about the obedience of faith I want you to notice that to bring about the obedience of faith you need to understand that this is a purpose statement so all of this is to do something so God is seeing a supreme value by establishing you in the gospel truth that has been known for all from, from eternity past and now declared through the prophets. God has done that for a reason. And the reason is that you to bring about the obedience of faith. That is, God is glorified in making us strong in the gospel to the goal of obedience and faith. God wants that to be the result. That to be the goal. That to be so the gospel has a goal. The gospel, you are strong for a goal. You are established for a purpose, and that purpose is obedience of faith. Now before we get into unpacking it, I want to to I highlight how important this phrase is to Paul's thinking and especially to in this letter to the Romans this idea of obedience of faith because this is Paul bookends the the letter to Romans with this phrase obedience of faith look at Romans chapter 1 verse 5 or I'll just read it through whom I'll go yeah Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith Paul begins his letter to the Romans, perhaps one of the greatest letters ever written. Paul begins, all of this is so that it would bring about the obedience of faith. And then he closes his letter with the idea that the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. We would call these bookends. That this letter is bookended by this phrase, to the obedience of faith, and at the end, to the obedience of faith. And generally, when we work um, in basic biblical interpretation oftentimes, and I don't think it's too far-fetched here, I think this would be a good way to go. That is, that the bookends kind of everything in between describes what that is. So what do you mean by obedience of faith? Everything that's described, everything that's in Romans 1-5 to the end is what Paul means by obedience of faith. If you want to unpack obedience of faith, what is obedience of faith? It is the letter to the Romans. So what do we mean? Let's be a little bit more specific as to what we might mean by obedience of faith. And I think, let me just use some synonyms here, and maybe that will help us. 
it helped me anyways. So this, is, this was helpful to me. Believing obedience. That's what believe, obedience and faith is. Believing obedience. All this, the gospel, God, is seen of supreme value when you are established by the gospel that saves so that you would have believing obedience to the end of believing obedience. So once again, we'll ask, how do we understand believing obedience? Well, first of all, believing obedience begins with self-renouncing trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It begins with trust in Christ for salvation. You cannot be obedient to God unless you first cross the door of salvation. And that is by placing your faith and your trust in the Christ who died for your sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. I'm sorry, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't even please God without believing obedience. That is, recognizing that Jesus is Lord, bowing the knee and saying, I'm going to deny myself and and give up my own self-pursuit and live my life for Christ. Christ saved me. I believe that your death and resurrection is sufficient to render a not guilty verdict on my behalf. I believe that. That's the first step of believing obedience or obedience of faith. And then that faith in Jesus Christ for salvation launches us into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. So we begin by saying, I'm going to um, set aside and renounce any trust I have in me saving myself and place all of my trust upon Jesus Christ to save me, which then launches us into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. And you should note that faith in the New Testament is not simply speaking of mere um, intellectual assent or agreement. Or not just mere mental assent, but it is demonstrated by a life that is in alignment with Jesus. So people, it's foreign in scripture to say, well I believe in Jesus Christ, but having no, I've put my faith in Christ, but having no demonstrable effect upon your life. That is foreign to scripture. It begins with a self-renunciation that I cannot do this on my own. I will place all of my... I'm putting all my eggs in the Jesus Christ basket, if you will. (laughs) If this doesn't work, nothing's going to work. If he can't save me, nothing can save me. Everything is placed. I mean, I'm all in. Pushing it all in. That's why Paul... I'm just going for it. And when one goes all in, God then changes our hearts and our desires and places His Spirit in us so that we now begin to live out the life of Jesus Christ who is indwelling us. And now He becomes, um, His plans, His desires become our desires and we begin to live out the life of Jesus Christ in our lives. Perhaps we see this summarized well in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Probably just a page over. So if you want to turn there, follow along with me as we see this believing... I think Paul unpacks believing obedience and condenses it here and, and makes it succinct of what believing obedience is. And here's how it goes. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. 
Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that great? Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good that's believing obedience you were said you are stabbed now to God who is able to be seen as of supreme value because he can make you immovable in the gospel to the end that we would have believing obedience beginning with a self-renunciation of our works that might merit salvation and ultimately resulting in this idea that we would love one another and we would do what is right before God and all of this through Jesus Christ. So, I'll summarize this point. Now to him. The one who is able to establish us by the eternal gospel that we might live out our lives and display his splendor to him be supreme value and supreme worth. Is that making sense? You see how Paul is bringing all of these things together. To him be glory. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Now to him, that is the one, the only wise God who is of supreme worth. He is of supreme worth and therefore he is able to establish you in the gospel. To the end that you would live out a life so that you would end up looking like his son, Jesus Christ. That we would be image bearers. We would go out into this world and we would bear the image of God through wherever we go, wherever we live, whoever we associate, we are bearing the image of God so that the glory of God might be displayed in all the world and the glory of God would cover the land as the waters cover the sea. And God's Planned from the beginning, right? What did he tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. He made them image bearers, right? And they weren't supposed to stay in the garden. They were to go out and bear the image of God across the world. That truth continues today. We have the Spirit of Christ. Bear the image of Christ. Go out and display the image of Christ in that so that God is seen of supreme value and supreme worth that everything that this world has to offer is of lesser value than God himself so that people would see that nothing is greater than having God. Having all of the things of this world does not compare with God because he is a supreme value and supreme worth and God has implanted the gospel in you so that you would live out that life to him be glory and power and praise forever and ever this is where Paul is going folks we are not our own 
He saved us to be faithful servants. He saved us so that we would glorify Him in our lives. And no doubt, we do this so utterly and perfectly. And hence, we have a, a righteous Christ who forgives us of our sin because we, we don't do this well. But that's the end. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And we're striving for that. And we stumble all the time in it. Folks, don't think for a moment that anybody in this room has this thing down pat. Please don't think that the guy who's proclaiming this to you has this down perfectly. Oftentimes, preachers, and I'll speak for myself in this, we have to declare with authority things we have yet to master. I don't display the glory of God. I don't display that obedience of faith every every moment of every day. But God has also commissioned, get up there and tell the people, first of all, you've preached it to yourself. (laughs) Now, get up and tell the people. And folks, we, we work with one another and we strengthen one another. How can we strengthen one another? Tell each other the gospel. Yes. Share the gospel with one another. You're going, but they're already saved. Folks, people need to hear the gospel. All the time, we need to hear about how we were lost and then found, and how God now has placed His Spirit within us, and He's empowering us so that neither life or death or principalities or powers or things in heaven or things on the earth or things to come or anything can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. People need to hear that all the time. You need to hear it. All the time. This is how we are established. This is how we're strong. Your brother or your sister is struggling. You know what? I'm really depressed. I'm thinking of, of sinning. I'm what a, what word would you speak to them? Don't do it. How about this? Share the gospel with them. But they're safe. Share the gospel with them. I guarantee you it will encourage them. It will strengthen them. It will empower them. Share the gospel with yourself when you wake up and you're depressed, you're blue, you're, you're struggling with something. Share the gospel with yourself. Paul David Tripp wrote a book. He speaks a lot to families, but he wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. And, and it's been a while since I read it. It's a fabulous book. You should, you, should, you should consider it. But the thing that I took from it is he said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And at first, when, he, when I read that, I'm like, oh, really? But as he began to unpack that, I was like, yeah, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach Romans to yourself. Lord, I was that person. I, there was no good in me. But the free gift of God is eternal life. I've been adopted into your, your family. By grace, I have been saved. And you filled me with your spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who can bring a charge against God, God's elect? You're the one who just preach that to one another. Share that with one another. Strengthen one. It is a, a, a way to be strong. Do you want to build people up? Build them up with that. What else are you going to give them? Some psychobabble from psychology today? And you got that? Are you joking? They say, well, they may not believe the gospel. Well, good. Share it with them because the gospel is the power of God's salvation. Share the gospel. Share it with yourself. Share it with others. Well, I get in these situations, and I, I'm, I don't know what to say to people half the time. Well, now I do. If you're not sure, read the book of Romans again. And all of this then, so, to the one who is able to strengthen us by the eternal gospel so that we might live lives that display his honor to him, to the only wise God, be supreme value and worth through Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. This is a doxology. 
A doxology is a declaration of God's greatness. And that's important. That when we gather together, we affirm and display God's greatness because we live in a society that discounts God's greatness. And especially during this time of year. The sinner is big and the Savior is small. Man is central. God is peripheral. The temporal is important and the eternal not so much. We talk about food and we talk about gifts and we talk about... But the eternal then is discounted. See, doxology draws our attention toward the greatness of God who in the fullness of time sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who are born under the law. So in other words, doxology draws our attention to the love of God that is on full display in Bethlehem's manger and that is, Paul begins or closes his letter with God being of supreme value and supreme worth. And today we close Advent with displaying God as having supreme value and supreme worth. There is nothing of greater value than our Lord and God. And we give praise to Him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Spend a few moments and...